I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 68th part of my sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ, in which my point is that we don't have to perform any ritual to make up for the sin that we have committed, because the blood of Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for all that we have done. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Good morning on November the 1st of uh, 2009. Our lesson for the morning is the 68th part of our sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ. And our text is found in Matthew 27, Mark 15, and Luke 23, which reads as follows. At that moment when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear our message for today. And Before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, in our last lesson, we reviewed the fact that Jesus submitted to his passion experience and his crucifixion to fulfill that which the scripture prophesied of the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled his heavenly responsibility by dying to atone for the sins of mankind after having lived a sinless life himself in order to fulfill the scripture. And having completed the task assigned to him by his father, Jesus returned to God as Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19 tells us, after taking the wine, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, it is finished. Then Jesus bowed his head. Father, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after saying these words, Jesus yielded up his spirit and breathed his last. Jesus sacrificed himself in the presence of witnesses that transmitted his experience to us so that those of us that are willing to believe in God's prophecy, Jesus's sacrifice, and Jesus's lordship over our lives can avoid eternal condemnation. Jesus died on the cross, although it would have been more satisfying for him to come down from the cross as he had been tempted to do. But Jesus did not come down from the cross because God's plan was not to save the nation of Israel from judgment with the cross. God's plan was to use Jesus' giving of himself at the cross to save the world from condemnation, as John 3:16 and 17 tells us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And our salvation is based upon the two parts of this passage of scripture. First of all, that Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, gave his life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the second part of John 3:16 and 17 indicates that we are saved because we believe in that which Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, Matthew 27, Mark 15, and Luke 23 tells us, at that moment when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the tearing of the veil in the temple was a particularly momentous sign of the change in God's relationship with mankind. The book of Exodus records that during the time of Moses, after the nation of Israel was rescued from Egyptian slavery and was traveling to the promised land, God designed the tabernacle as a portable sanctuary that the Israelites could carry with them as they traveled. They could set the tabernacle up, worship God, and then take it down to continue their journey. Deuteronomy 16 and 16 told the Jews, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Now the tabernacle consisted of a tent-like structure covered by rug-like coverings for a roof and an external courtyard 150 feet by 75 feet. The compound was surrounded by a seven-foot fence made of linen hangings held by pillars. The tent was made of wooden boards overlaid with gold and fitted together to form the walls, measuring 45 feet long by 30 feet high by 15 feet wide. And on top, four layers of curtains acted as a roof to shield the tabernacle from the sun and the rain. The inside of this tent was divided into the holy place and the most holy place. The holy place measured 30 feet long, 30 feet high, and 15 feet wide. And the most holy place, the section of the diagram to the right of the four pillars, was a perfect 15-foot cube, 15 feet long, high, and wide. And inside this most holy part of the tent, shielded from the eyes of the common man, was a wooden chest three feet nine inches long, two foot three inches high, and two foot three inches wide, overlaid with pure gold inside and outside. The chest was called the Ark of the Testimony, or the Ark of the Covenant, and it contained a pot containing one day's portion of the manna that fell from heaven during the Exodus, Aaron's wooden rod that produced buds and flowers while Aaron was holding it in the presence of the Pharaoh to show the Pharaoh the power of God, and the two stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. These items, each of which was a direct testimony of the interaction of God with Israel, were considered the most holy items of Judaism. Now, the Ark of the Testimony was covered 
by a lid that was decorated with two golden angels or cherubim, symbols of God's divine presence and power pointed toward each other, facing downward toward the ark with outstretched wings that covered the atonement cover. The whole structure was beaten out of one piece of pure gold. In Exodus 25 and 22, God said to Moses, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. And in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, the high priest, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Now a woven curtain called the veil, made of fine linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, four inches thick, 30 feet high and 15 feet wide separated the most holy place from the holy place. You can see the figure, the veil on the figure just behind and attached to the four pillars. There were figures of cherubim, which are angels, embroidered on the veil. Cherubim, spirits who guarded the throne of God, were in the presence of God to demonstrate his almighty power and majesty. And the veil was a barrier between man and God, showing that man could not trifle with the holiness of God. God's eyes are too pure to look on evil, and he can tolerate no sin. As Habakkuk 1.13 tells us, you are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. The veil was a barrier to make sure that man did not carelessly and irreverently enter God's awesome presence. When the high priest entered the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, he had to make meticulous preparations. He had to wash himself, put on special clothing, bring burning incense to let the smoke cover his eyes from a direct view of God, and bring blood from a freshly killed animal with him to make atonement for sin. And when Herod built his temple, just before the time of Jesus, he doubled the size of the holy place, making it 60 feet long, 60 feet high, and 30 feet wide. And when Jesus died, the veil was four inches thick, 60 feet high, and 30 feet wide, and took 300 priests to embroider and refurbish it each year. Herod did not have the internal furnishings for the most holy plate, that most holy place, rather, that the Old Testament proscribed because those original items had been taken from Solomon's temple by the Babylonians in 586 BC when they took Judah into captivity. But the holy and most holy places held the same meaning for the Jews in Jesus' day as they did for the Jews that presided over the original temple built under the supervision of Moses. Leviticus 16 and 2 makes it clear that only the Levites could enter the most holy place, the holy place rather, and no one except the high priest could enter the most holy place on pain of death. But Matthew 27, Mark 15, and Luke 23 tells us 
that when Jesus died on the cross, at that moment when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that the four-inch thick, 60-foot-high piece of cloth that served as the barrier to ceremonially separate sinful man from holy God was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died. The place where the annual Jewish sacrifices for sin were offered by the most holy and purified of the Jewish leaders once a year was no longer holy. It was exposed to the view of anyone that wished to look into it. And as shocking as this may have been to the priests ministering in the temple at that day, it is indeed good news to us as believers because the tearing of the veil of the temple represents the end of the rituals of the Jewish temple, the end of animal sacrifices for sins, and the end of the Jewish priesthood. All of the Jewish rituals that were instituted by God in the Old Testament were ended because Jesus' death has atoned for our sins and made us right before God. Let us listen to God's own explanation as given beginning in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, 6, and 7. Then indeed, even the first covenant, the covenant recorded in the Old Testament, had ordinance of divine service by the Levites and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, the holy place, in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the veil of the temple, is the part, the part of the tabernacle which is called holiest of all, or the most holy place. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, the holy place, performing the services. But into the second part, the most holy place, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So the elaborate rituals, ceremonies, and sacrifices in the tabernacle were the focal point of the worship of God who designed these elaborate rituals to bring his chosen people into a relationship with him. But the next verse goes on to tell us, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So although there was a physical earthly place that the Jews called the most holy place, there was yet another place, the holiest of all, even more holy than the most holy place that God had not revealed to the Jews while the first tabernacle was still standing. And although God initially ordained tabernacle worship for the Jews, the tabernacle worship was only symbolic. As Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9 and 10 explains, the tabernacle and tabernacle worship was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect 
in regard to the conscience concerned only with food and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. And so, since the elements of tabernacle worship were all physical and earthly, they did not meet man's need for the improvement of his conscience and spirit. Our problem is that we can say that we are sorry for our sins, but not actually be sorry. We can offer a sacrifice of atonement for our sins, but have no desire to atone. We can perform the physical rituals required for repentance by the scripture while not actually being repentant. We can perform rituals and ceremonies, give offerings and sacrifices, and do anything ex and do anything else external that may change our circumstances on the outside, but all those actions can leave us unchanged on the inside. Matthew chapter nine, verse ten and eleven tells us: Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now the Pharisees held that the tax collectors and sinners were irrevocably lost because they neglected the rituals of the tabernacle that God required while they, the Pharisees, Observe them. But the reality of the situation was that the performance of the rituals by the Pharisees had not changed them. Consider, had the sacrifices actually changed the Pharisees from sinfulness to sinlessness, they would have no need to continue to make the sacrifices. In reality, the focus of the Pharisees on the sacrifices for sin only proved that the Pharisees were still sinners that needed to repent, just as were the tax collectors and sinners. But when God himself showed up in the person of Jesus Christ with the offer to actually cleanse sin once and for all, the tax collectors and sinners responded to God's offer to cleanse them from their sin, while the Pharisees disdained God's offer to cleanse them. The Pharisees chose, rather than being cleansed, to continue observing the rituals. In reality, the Pharisees did not worship God, but rather they worshiped the rituals that God gave them. The Pharisees did not worship God, but rather they worshiped the temple that God gave them. So in Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus came to the earth as the physician with the ability to heal both physical disease and sin. Now, when Marie and I started dancing, I was not aware of the fact that Marie's feet hurt her terribly. I didn't know because she didn't complain but she took Advil to relieve the pain. But eventually, the pain became so great that she decided to have her feet fixed. She had a damaged joint 
in each of her big toes, and her surgeon replaced them with titanium joints. On her right foot, the surgeon also had to break a bone that had become crooked and realign the bones in her foot to make them straight. The surgeon temporarily immobilized Marie's feet so that she couldn't injure them while they healed. And at our last visit, the surgeon pronounced the healing process complete, and now Marie has to get some exercise to allow her muscles, which have atrophied to some degree since her foot was immobilized, to recover and regain full function. Now Marie is healed. Of course, Marie did have an alternative to surgery. She could have taken increasingly stronger painkillers to relieve the pain in her feet caused by our dancing. And in his interaction with the tax collectors and sinners, Jesus was doing what the surgeon did. He was actually healing their sin sickness by giving them a new birth. He was filling them with the Holy Spirit, and they were being changed on the inside, actually repenting of their sins and developing a new life, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But the Pharisees did not want to be healed. The Pharisees did not want the new birth because they were satisfied taking the painkillers of performing rituals. Their rituals made them feel okay, like painkillers might make someone able to function temporarily. But they refused to recognize that the rituals in the temple did not heal their sinfulness and cause them to repent, but rather simply acknowledge the fact that they were still sinners. But Jesus had the prescription for their sinfulness, and he gave it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, which says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, Pharisee, your sacrifice does not heal your sin. Your sacrifice does not change you. When you perform your sacrifice, you acknowledge your continued sin, but you are not healed. You have simply taken a painkiller. God wants to be merciful to you. God doesn't want you to continue sacrificing, and he sent me to have mercy on you and heal you, but I can't do it unless you allow me to. It is ultimately pointless to acknowledge your sin if you have no plans to change it. If you are committed to simply sacrificing over and over, your sacrifice leads to repetition rather than repentance. And although repeating the cycle of sin and sacrifice may make you feel better, ultimately it is useless. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross does away with the repetition of the Jewish sacrificial system. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12 tells us, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained 
eternal redemption. The blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross is not just a sacrifice for our sins. The blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross is the solution for our sins. God tells us that the blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross solved the problem of sin once for all. We are no longer under the curse of the law of repetitious, ineffective sacrifice. And that's why God tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every time that the high priest went into the most holy place, he took death with him. The altar in the most holy place was the place an altar in the holy place rather was the place where the priest killed an animal the high priest could not enter the most holy place without the blood of a freshly killed animal because the wages of sin is death represented by the dead animal's blood jesus christ took the penalty for our sins on himself he took his own blood into the heavenly tabernacle and offered it for our sins once for all, and our sins no longer require any other sacrifice. No more earthly altar, no more earthly killing of animals, no more animal blood. How do I know? Matthew 27, Mark 15, and Luke 23 tell us that when Jesus died on the cross, at that moment when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil is torn. God is no longer there. The most holy place is no longer most holy. We no longer have to offer sacrifices. We no longer have to offer blood to God. Jesus tells Nicodemus about the new way to please God in John chapter 3, verse uh, 3 through 6. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You have to be born of the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But as 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 53 tells us, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does corruption inherit incorruption. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. We have to be reborn rather than perform sacrifices to be changed. Since the veil of the temple was torn in two, the old commandments are no longer in effect. Since the, new, since the veil of the temple was torn in two, the new commandment is in effect. 
and the new commandment has nothing to do with rituals or sacrifices but as john tells us that rather as jesus tells us in john chapter 13 verse 34 and 35 a new commandment i give to you that you love one another as i have loved you that you also love one another by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another no temple no rituals, no sacrifices, no looking down on tax collectors and sinners, no disdain for others that are not as good as us. We have to give up the old in order to embrace the new. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3 in the NIV, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gifts of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, Mary said, I'm married, and I have a small child. I have three younger sisters, and my parents divorced when I was four. I feel that issues from my past, like the divorce, have caused me to be very angry. I don't know if that's the source of my anger, but I find that I'm taking out my anger on my husband. My husband and I get into arguments a lot, and he tells me that he doesn't know why I am so angry all the time. He said that I need to work on my anger issues. And my mom used to say that to me when I was younger. But I don't know how to deal. And the counselor interrupted. And you got away with that? Your mom didn't deal with your anger? Mary responded, well, uh, I, I guess I just can't help myself. I get angry. The counselor continued, you're making it sound like your angry reactions are out of your control. You were angry because your parents got divorced, and now you feel justified in making other people miserable. Mary was shocked. Well, uh, I, she stammered, yes, said the counselor, you just told me that you're taking out your anger on your husband. That means that you feel in your own mind that making your husband miserable is something that you are justified to do. You feel justified in your own mind. You have decided that somebody should be punished and made miserable because you had the misfortune to grow up in a broken home. And since you can't or don't want to make your parents miserable, you married a man so that you could take it out on him. Of course, your husband had nothing to do with your broken home, but you feel like you should be able to take out your anger without having, about having a broken home on somebody. And so you elected him. Mary responded, then what can I possibly do about the underlying issue of being angry? The counselor replied, the underlying issue is not the problem. The fact that you feel justified in making your husband miserable is the problem. If I told you, that someone stuck pins in a voodoo doll and that's what's making you angry, you would have the same problem. 
Well, Mary responded, how do I go about realizing when I'm getting angrier or more upset? I don't know how to control that type of emotion. Sure you do, said the counselor. You don't do it to your minister. You don't do it to a police officer. You don't do it to a nurse or to the doctor. You only do it when you think you can get away with it. So when you say you can't control it, you know that's not true. You control it all the time when the price you would have to pay for showing it would be too great. I guess that's true, said Mary. Oh, Mary, you know how to be sweet if you want to. But, said the counselor, you hurt your husband because you feel entitled to. You feel justified in hurting your husband. You married him so that you would have someone to take your anger out on. You were sweet to him long enough to make him want to marry you, and you seduced him into making vows to stay with you for the rest of your life. Now you think that you can abuse him to your heart's content because he can't leave. You feel that you can mistreat him because he will stay and take it. You feel safe, and so you do it all of the time. You know, at least you thought you knew, that he would stay. But the reason that you're seeking counseling now is that you are realizing that eventually people get enough. Sometimes people don't stay. You can only kick a dog so many times, and he won't come anymore, Mary thought. So she responded, you're pretty much saying that I'm dealing with someone that I don't need to take my anger out on. I should not treat him badly. The counselor replied, Mary, if you want to keep your husband, you will have to change. You will have to put your childhood anger behind you. Understand how this works. Men that leave their marriages very seldom decide to leave their children. Men that leave their marriages usually decide to leave their wives, and they end up leaving their children because their wives keep the children. But men leave their wives either because they are just bad men or because their wives mistreat them. Your father left your mother. And you are behaving as though you want your husband to leave you as well. Now, we know he's not a bad guy, that is your husband. So you're pushing him out by your behavior. Your anger may be because of your broken childhood home. But why you are angry is not really relevant. The relevant question now is, do you want to see your husband leave or not? Think about it because it's your decision. There was nothing you could do about your father leaving. But whether or not your husband leaves is your decision. You can either draw him in or push him out. I know because you drew him in once and now you're pushing him out. The one you do is up to you. So which one will it be? Saints, no ritual will help us if we want to be part of God's kingdom. To be part of God's kingdom, we will have to change. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 through 13 in the NIV, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, 
It keeps no records of wrongs. It does not de delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. For where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, when I was a child, I talked as a child. I thought as a child. I, I reasoned as a child. But when I became a man, I put childish things behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, often as I am known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. All the rules, all the regulations, all the rituals in the Old Testament were for us as children. Christianity is for us as adults. There are no rules, no regulations, no rituals, just the obligation to love God and to love one another. But it requires adult maturity for us to live without the rules. So in order for us to be Christian, we have to put away childish things. The veil of the temple is torn. The age of rituals is over. There are only two sacraments in the Christian church. One is baptism, and a person can only effectively be baptized once. Baptism is a symbol of being born again, and you can only be reborn one time. Nicodemus made it clear that a man cannot go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time. But although Jesus differentiated between water birth through the birth canal and spirit birth through the Holy Spirit, he agreed with Nicodemus that there is, only, there is only one of each birth per custom. If you've been baptized twice, one of those two times was just a ritual, not a rebirth. The second sacrament is communion, and it is a sacrament of remembrance, not of salvation. Taking communion does not save you, but just reminds you of that which Jesus Christ has done to save you. And that's why Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 25. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Communion is a remembrance. There are no rules or regulations about communion. Paul does not say to take communion every week, every month, or three times a year. Paul says to take communion as often as you want to. It's not a ritual. It's a remembrance. The veil in the temple is torn. The days of rituals are over. 
The days of external rules and regulations are over. The days of atonements for sin are over. The days of laws and regulations are over. There is only one law with two commandments. Matthew 22, 35 through 40 tells us, then one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus Christ died so that our sins would be forgiven. If we are born again, we will love God for saving us and spend the rest of our time figuring out how to love our neighbor. We may slip in sin, but our sins have been forgiven. We don't have to perform any ritual to make up for that which we have done because the blood of Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for all that we have done. All we have to do is repent and return to loving God and our neighbor as Jesus tells us in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus died for us, and the veil of the temple is torn. Let us grow up, be adults, Forget about the childish rules and regulations and simply love one another as Christ has loved us. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this, this morning for this lesson that you have given us. And we ask you, Lord, that you would allow this to sink deep down into our hearts. Help us to recognize that the rituals and the sacrifices, that the laws and the rules and the regulations, that all those things were for us as children. But now that we have become adults, that we are only bound by the law of love to love one another as you have loved us. By this, all men will know that we are your disciples because we have love for one another. And we ask you, Lord, that you would give us that love that runs from heart to heart and from breast to breast. Help us, Lord, to consider others better than ourselves. Help us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Give us the mind to live lives that would be worthy of your sacrifice. Give us the mind to live lives of adult maturity and not childish fantasy. And help us, Lord, as we have already prayed, that we might love one another, even as you have loved us. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray.
Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.